Amen. Church, good morning. Hey, my name's Tim. I'm glad you're here today. This is your first time here. I'd love to meet you afterward. If you've got a Bible with you, though, open up to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. That's not true. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. If you got it, say you got it. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. So I think it was like 1938 when the U.S. government required companies that are producing food for people to eat. They had to, they had to put a, a label on the back of the stuff that they were producing and selling to people that told you, the consumer, exactly what you were consuming. And so 100% ground beef, that's what you would expect in a big old log of ground beef. This is helpful, right? Later on in the 1960s, some of you may remember this, when cigarettes started to have the, the big old warning sign, the, the, the warning label. Do you remember this? Ha <laughs> ha, you outed yourself. The, the Surgeon General, the Surgeon General said something to the effect of, these will kill you. Mm. Aren't you grateful for warning labels? They're a good thing. Some of them like go without, like it, it's so obvious. Why do, we need, um, why do we need a warning label for something, right? Like propane, propane tanks are flammable. Did you know that? Like the stuff that's inside them, they go boom when you, when you light stuff around them. Um, McDonald's coffee? Do you remember the, the lawsuit several, goodness, many years ago, actually. Hot coffee scalds you. This is not good. There were a couple others I took note of. One, there was a, um, a Halloween costume manufacturer. Um, they, they specialize in making superhero and, and comic book hero costumes for little kids. And on the warning label, it reads, will not make you fly. <sighs> we know this. This is this commonsensical, right? Um, those sunshades. If you put them in your, on, your, on your car, they're, they're meant to protect your dashboard. You shouldn't drive with them. And that's one of the, that's one of the warning labels. Another one from Staples several years ago on their website had an envelope opener. It's plastic. And it's one of those that have the little thin ribbon of plastic that helps you scoop underneath of the letter. You know what I'm talking about with the, the, the sharp blade on it? It reads, sharp blade, we recommend using safety goggles. No one, there's only one person in here that I know of that opens letters that aggressively. <laughs> they might be on staff. <laughs> we could talk about that next, next Sunday. There are just some things that are just way too important, though, um, to, to neglect. And we need to be aware of warning signs and aware of danger. We need to be aware of 
those kinds of disclaimers, and John is giving one, especially throughout chapter 2. John has been making us painfully aware that if we walk in the light as Jesus is the light, our life changes. And last week we heard about two different moral checks to, to pay attention to. We come to the final one, though, and we could state it simply as love the people of the light. If you are a Christian, someone that Jesus bled and died for, and you pledged your life to him in fidelity and trust, that is who you are. And you have a ton of other people that also follow Jesus, that Jesus's blood is covering over right now, and he claims them as his own. John expects and calls us to love these kinds of people primarily. But he gives a ton of warning labels throughout this passage. And we would do well to listen. Caution, danger, like all sorts of exclamation points you need, you need to hear, okay? If you're able to, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? There's going to be an underlined portion on the screen, a couple of verses. I'd invite you to read those aloud with us. And at the end, I want to continue to encourage a posture of thankfulness for God's word. Would you, after we, we, we read God's word, would you say with me, thanks be to God. This is what God's word says to us this morning. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. Verse eight, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light hates his brother and, still, and is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, but whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word to us this morning. Remember the context of the passage of, of the, the, the book, right? John is writing to a group of people that have been just thrown. Um, it's, it's both a relational book. It's heavily doctrinal in nature too, there have been people that infiltrated the church or churches that he's writing to um, and they've brought in with them, they're peddling false doctrine. What is that? Namely, Jesus is not flesh. Jesus is not man. Jesus is not currently as a man, both God and man in heaven right now, interceding on your behalf, which means Jesus has not come in the flesh to pay the penalty of sin, which means that we're still in our sins. This is bad news. And rather, they would push and contend that there's a special kind of knowledge that people can have um, outside of knowing God and his gospel that he's demonstrated for us through the person of Jesus. They snake other people away. And what John is doing, first like a good dad, 
He's helping them see there's a better way. Remember what you've once heard already. That the light changes people. That the true light has come. And in him you can have life. He introduces a brand new test for us to wrestle with today, and it's the question of love. So if you're taking notes and you're filling in in blanks, he's saying, first off, verses seven through eight, that the disciples' pathway, our, our way through life, is that we embrace other disciples. The disciples' pathway, yours and mine, both equally, is that we embrace other disciples. You see how in verse seven, how he introduces, they're not children anymore, they're beloved. How great is it to be titled as someone that's cherished and loved and treasured by God? That's what he's calling them. I think it's fair to call you that if you're in Jesus. He would be right to you. He would say, beloved. He says that there is a commandment he's reaffirming and introducing it's old and new. It's old and new at the same time. He's not talking about your sourdough starter. He's talking about what they've heard from Jesus. It's old in that they've heard the same thing from him and how Jesus has taught them. It's as old as the law itself. Remember how Jesus summed up the, the law, all 600 plus commandments of it? You love the Lord your God and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's really old. It's ancient. This is what God has called his people always to. Since the very beginning, he started calling people his own. But it's also new. It's painfully new. Where do we see this? When you walk through the Gospels, you see a very exclusive Jesus. And he has a very exclusive offer to people. And that is you cannot see the kingdom of God without first being born again. And so that's a message for anyone to hear, but only people that are going to be born again and trust in him are going to participate in this brand new kingdom that he started building. Life eternal and joy forever. Jesus is exclusive. But he's painfully inclusive as well. Jesus' love was wildly inclusive. What happens when he starts calling the disciples? He spends three years with them. It's noted that Jesus spent time so many hours, apparently more, with three other guys, Peter, James, and John. John noted this in his gospel. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the disciple that Jesus loved. They were intimately aware of Jesus' love for them. And then as the, the message of the kingdom starts going out and about, other people started to join the cause too. You have Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They all loved Jesus and they wanted to pledge their lives to him because of what the kingdom was about. When you get to, you get this Sermon on the Mount. 
How radically inclusive is Jesus' love? You pray for your enemies. The expectation goes so far to say that you love your enemies. Those that want to persecute you and vilify you and that frankly gross you out. God calls us to this kind of love. But it's old. It's old in that God has called his people to be this kind of people, to love unconditionally one another. That doesn't mean that we don't relate to each other with conditions, but that fidelity is always there. And how we relate to one another is based upon Christ's love for us. And it's new though, in that this is the way that God would conquer his enemies. Not just with the threat of the sword, but by conquering their heart. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you grateful that Jesus loves us in such a way that he gave his life for you and me while we were still sinners? And this is a kind of love that God calls us to have with one another. Is anyone uncomfortable yet? The disciples' pathway embraces other disciples based upon Christ's love for us, not manufactured based upon anything else. So continue on, 9 through 11. Your relationships, they, they say something, they can talk. Where do they say that you abide? So John pivots, exposes us to a hard truth. What's he say? If you say that you live in the light, but you hate your brother, you are in darkness. That makes me tremble. You might say that I don't spew venom at them. I don't get red-faced when we disagree. I'm not throwing stuff because of what they've done to me. And that is on the, the spectrum of emotional outbursts, perhaps one of the worst things that we could do. But biblically speaking, hatred is much more sinister than that. It is disinterest. It is disfavor. It is when you hear a concern or worry about another brother or sister in here, your heart doesn't move an inch towards them. It's when you know that they're hurt or wounded, you don't move towards them in compassion. It's when you know that there is a need that they have, but you don't move towards them 
in finding a way to satisfy the need that they have. Hate biblically is not vitriol. That's screaming at the top of your lungs. It is as if they don't exist in your life, that they don't matter. What a terrifying thought to think that someone that matters to God does not matter to you. To not feel for or pray for or consider. To not move towards forgiveness. Those that God continues to love and cherish and treasure. Does it make sense why John would say to the Christian then, or to those that hate Christians rather, let's be more specific, that if you do not love in this way, but rather hate, you walk in darkness. Do you see how this makes sense? Jesus, while we were still needy and selfish as we were and still are, Jesus' posture towards you and me is still forever faithful, forever forgiving from the beginning until the end. That's what Jesus does for you. Jesus' posture towards us when we would ignore him is to still move towards us. And so here's the warning label. If you write anything down, this is it. A heart that's continually disinterested towards others that are a part of the family of God reveals disinterest towards Jesus' kingdom. Chronic dislike for others that belong to the body reveals dislike or hatred for Jesus' body. Continued disapproval for one of your brothers or sisters that reveals disapproval for Jesus' choice himself. You're not happy with what he's done. And so there are a couple ways we can get real practical for a moment. One of them, I think, is just how we organize our life around other people. And the other one is how we deal with doctrine. Let's deal with the doctrinal piece first. Two thousand five, um, Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Moeller, when he talks about the seminary, he likes to enunciate and put a lot of emphasis on the, right? So the president. He wrote a little article titled, A Call for Theological Triage in Christian Maturity. The historical Christian faith, he would say, has been assailed from so many different sides outside of the church but it continues to ramp up, especially inside of the church. Especially with those who Jesus' blood has been applied to. Okay? He says this. 
The misjudgment of true fundamentalism is the belief that all disagreements are concerning first order doctrines. Tim, what are you talking about? Hang with me. Thus the third order issues are raised to first order importance and Christians are wrongfully and harmfully divided. What's another way to say that? Doctrine is important. Confessing Jesus as Lord is central to the gospel. You, you must believe in him in order to be rescued and saved. But not all pieces of our doctrine weigh in the same way. You follow? We have first order. I keep talking about this, especially through 1 John, so that there's no misunderstanding. The Gnostics taught heresy. They were outside of the faith. In this 21st century that we live in today, there are good, godly brothers and sisters that teach from the Bible that believe very differently from you and me. They would agree on first order stuff. Jesus is God and man. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. We are saved by justification alone, by faith alone, in Jesus alone. When you go down the list, though, there are a bunch of other things that are important and maybe churches should, like, start grouping together and fellowshiping with, but not to the point of division and vitriol and hatred or general disinterest, which is hatred, according to John. we could potentially partner together with another church that believes differently than baptism. What do I mean by that? We live in a really big area that has a massive need for the gospel. I would be comfortable, we can talk about this later, if they go to a Presbyterian church where children are baptized and babies are, but their pastor preaches the gospel of Jesus, then hallelujah, praise the Lord if they went there. They're going to hear the Bible. They're going to hear heavy doctrine. Would that mean necessarily that we need to merge together and become a new church? Absolutely not. But we can be partners in ministry for the sake of the gospel of Jesus here in North County and beyond. We can do that. Even being a Southern Baptist, there's so much room in our statement of faith for lots of difference of opinion. But that's baptism. Gavin Ortland wrote a tiny little book where he's talking about this theological triaging stuff where even, even issues of Arminianism versus Calvinism, those are third order issues. Brothers and sisters can still gather together in the same church and still fellowship together, and still have a difference of opinion because Jesus is who unites and binds us together. Whether that's a difference of a view of the millennium and how Jesus is coming and when he is coming, or spiritual gifts, full-blown cessationist or not, The conversations that happen too frequently with looser lips and a tight, hardened heart blast brothers and sisters in an unhelpful way 
Doctrine is important. But real doctrine is reflected in real fidelity towards your brothers and sisters. How you talk to one another matters. The tone of our voice matters. The word usage and choice that you have, it matters. If for no other reason than the benefit of the doubt for a brother or a sister. How quick you are to address wrong and extend forgiveness, it matters. How you live in unity of the spirit and the bond of peace matters. Charity is the ultimate virtue of the Christian. That doesn't mean that we have to be soft on every issue. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I am suggesting that if our doctrine does not move us towards love, it's not healthy doctrine. We can champion the supremacy of Christ in holding all things together by the word of his power. And if that doesn't move me to loving my neighbor or my brother or sister here, I really don't believe that he holds all things together because I can't even have a conversation with someone that I have conflict with. We need to move towards one another. Number two is the practical side. The practical side, where it's easy to compartmentalize our life. We have church here, and you, you, you planners, any of you that use planners, I'm about to mess your life up. It's easy to love people between nine and five. It's easy to love people when I'm here at church, but they're not in my life any other time. When we, I'm saying that there is wisdom in scheduling your life. Like, that's a great and good thing. You should do that. But love obligates me to love my neighbor when stuff happens in their life. And it obligates me to love my brother and sister all the more. And so, what does this mean practically? I have the great honor of going on a ride-along with, with Mike later on um, this week. And shortly after that, being a chaplain to the police force in Hazelwood. This is great. The challenge with that is, is that there are going to be phone calls at 3 or 4 in the morning. And coming along with police officers as they're giving um, notices for death to, to someone's loved one. That's not fun. Disinterest and disregard for brothers and sisters in the struggle and the fight looks like ignoring phone calls when they need you. Are you willing to answer the phone? Are you willing to answer your phone at 3 a.m., not p.m., 
not while you're at work, then we get a reason to step outside for a moment, right? But when you're trying to rest and sleep, are you willing to engage and be present for a brother and not disregard, but regard them as higher than you? Can you do that? John calls us to that. John has stronger language. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and doesn't know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. What's John saying? Is he saying that if you have cataract surgery, everything's gonna be okay? No. You just need to get a flashlight then. Is that, that's obviously not the answer. What's he calling us to? He's saying that this individual who disregards and pushes aside does no care to those that belong to Jesus. He's saying that they walk in darkness. They walk in darkness. John, over again, he's showing us that being in the light, it changes us. Like spring is right around the corner and all of its Showers and sunshine means flowers are going to grow. It was a cold day yesterday, but there was a little squirrel that started to like come out and like do what squirrels do. Right when the sun was starting to come out and starting to heat up things just a little bit. Even on cold, frigid days, even the warmth of the sun enlivens and give strength and encourages to be out, right? Or even on a forage, being near the warmth and heat of the fire, it enables us to be shapen. We need to be in the light. It's not a matter of changing your vision. It's a matter of where you live. It's a matter of where you choose to abide. John is saying, if we walk in darkness, we live in the darkness. But if we live in the light as he is in the light, we love one another. So if relationships talk, and they were talking to you, what would they say? Drew, a moment ago, he talked about how the scriptures keep using this language of let him who have ears, let him hear. The relationships that you have with other brothers and sisters, what are they saying to you? For some of us, they're clearly saying that we walk in darkness. Well, I can think about times that I've loved people. Let's press into that a little bit. What was the primary motivation behind moving towards someone? Is it self-satisfaction in knowing that I can be seen and heard? Or is it covertly, gently out of love for someone else? Does your heart need to be softened today towards a brother or a sister here today? 
The Psalms talk about how beautiful it is when people dwell in unity with one another. It's not just a moral obligation. He's saying that this is a beauty. This is a treasure to put on display for the whole world to see when we love one another. And so you need to be reminded today of Christ's faithfulness for you. And repent and come back into the light. Some of us are coming out of the shadows and it's hard to love the church. We can scoff at people that say church hurt isn't a real thing. What am I supposed to do though when this group of people are supposed to be the embodiment of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? What am I supposed to do with that when they're not? Maybe it's a matter of expectations not being met. There could be other things involved too. People do get hurt by other people that they trust. Likewise, they get hurt by people that they shouldn't have. John is still calling you to move out of hurt, move out of hatred, and instead find a way to soften your heart by meeting with a counselor, a pastor, meeting with Jesus in prayer and letting the word wash over you. Like, we need to do that. I know a lot of you. You walk in the light as best as you can. You fight for it. You want to. You contend for brother and sister. You love. You pray for. You've languished over them. You celebrate with them. When they call at 3 a.m., you don't hang up on them. You love. You, so continue to love. Church, the love of God in Christ awakens us to love the body like it's our own. Because we are our own. Like it or not. That was too many amens from that person. <laughs> Can we go to the Lord in prayer? Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And we thank you for your word and the work that your word does. And we need it. And we want to receive it. Father, I confess, I am not a great lover. Some days I don't want to be a great lover, but I want to want to. Father, would you use that? Father, I'm grateful for the love that your people here have for one another. There is no greater compelling message um, that the gospel embodied um, today in front of people more than a church that loves each other well. And what a compelling vision that is. I, I do pray that you'd encourage and strengthen our love. 
Would you do this, please? I pray, though, for those that walk in darkness. Father, I pray that you would graciously expose them. Reveal to them the reason why unity and peace isn't there is because they don't have unity and peace with you. I pray that you'd bring healing and rest as they trust in Christ. Father, we love you because you first loved us and we love each other because you first loved us. So we give you and each other our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.